Hey, you are listening to The Workplace Leader. This is the podcast where we go behind the scenes of corporate real estate, talking to industry experts about how they shape the next generation workplace. I'm your host, Sabine M. And in today's episode, I'm speaking with Darren Murph. Darren is head of remote at GitLab. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm with Darren Murph, and he's actually been a guest recommendation by Tracy Hawkins. So I'm really, really excited that we made that connection and are speaking today. Hi, Darren. Hey, Sabine. Great to be here. Let's not waste time. We have a lot to talk about. I'm really, really curious of how a company that's fully remote works. And that actually brings me to the question, what's your role? What are your tasks? and responsibilities within that role. Yeah, so I am the head of remote at GitLab. So let me unpack that a little bit and give you some context. So GitLab is over 1,500 people in more than 65 countries with no company-owned offices. And so we were built as an all-remote, all-distributed company from inception. It was organized in this way, which is very different than a company that had co-located roots and then pivoted to remote work during COVID. So there's there's that context. I joined the company in July of 2019, so before COVID. So the context there is we were scaling as an organization around 700 or so people at the time. And we recognized that to do this well long-term at scale, you really need someone or a team in charge of properly operationalizing all of these remote first principles, making sure that they are well integrated into onboarding, making sure that there's a tight link with learning and development for manager upskilling and training. And of course, to pay attention to the market as we evolve, as new technologies come out, we want to make sure that we're on the leading edge of all of that. So it's a fun, dynamic job. I also get to tell the world about it, to be the chief evangelist, if you will, on all of the ways that we are pioneering the future of work. And it really works out well. GitLab is an open core company. Our entire company handbook, our operating manual is public to the world. And so we document how we work remotely. And then when COVID happened, we were able to easily transfer that into a digestible asset called the Remote Playbook. It's been downloaded over 100,000 times by leaders and organizations all over the world as they craft their own remote blueprint, being forced into it through the pandemic. Yeah, I think I'll have a couple of more questions on that book later on. But for now, maybe quick housekeeping for people who don't know, what does GitLab do? GitLab is the DevOps platform. So every company needs to become a software company. GitLab makes the platform to help you make better software faster. Yeah. I think my developer colleagues are going to hate me for that question because they're going to be like, duh. No, it's a fair question. And people are realizing that it's also great for collaboration. So GitLab, the team, the company uses GitLab, the platform to collaborate across our entire organization, even beyond engineering. And so I think more and more clients and teams will look into using that as we've all gone remote. Yeah. Now you've said it, you're kind of chief evangelist because a lot of companies are looking into hiring people that are looking after remote workers, creating that head of remote or remote experience role. Now, how do I become a head of remote? What's your professional background? 
Yeah, so I've had a fun and interesting journey. Uh, I have an educational background in operations and supply chain management by way of marketing and communications. And what's interesting about a head of remote role or a workplace leader role that encompasses remote is you really need to sit at the nexus of operations and change management and communications and marketing. And the reason for this is this is a huge fundamental rethinking of how people work and where they work and all of the things that make work work. And if you just try to get through this change through one policy after another, it's going to feel like a mandate. It's going to be very difficult to get tailwinds. It's, it will be difficult to get people to buy into this. But if it is cast as a vision of what the future could look like, if these things are embraced and if this change is embraced, well, now it feels like purpose and mission. And that is how you galvanize people toward a different future. And so interestingly, you kind of need to sit at that nexus or at least build out a team where those competencies are represented. So who do you typically work with then in the company? I typically work with marketing and people operations. And the interesting thing about this question more broadly is it depends. I've seen this role sit in finance if it's a company that has a lot of real estate assets and there's this great discussion on how do we leverage those? How do we innovate with real estate in the new world? I've also seen it sit in design. Dropbox is a great example. Their VP of design oversees the remote transformation because they see people design through the same lens as product design. So it can sit anywhere in the organization. The one thing that I advise is make sure that it's senior enough to actually influence change and make sure that you have someone who is very collaborative because it will likely be the most cross-functional role in your entire company remote or the way people work operations touches every single function in your company and how you set people up for success every single day it will impact the results that the entire organization drives so it's cross-functional it's dynamic uh, and i hope you like talking with a lot of leaders and making sure that they're on the same page yeah especially since you are and you've mentioned it before fully remote and you have always been now, the question for me is how fully remote is fully remote? Do you never meet? Is there personal interaction? And if yes, how do you engineer that? Yeah, so great point of nuance here. GitLab does not own any company-owned offices, but we employ humans. And humans are social beings. They are communal beings. Getting together in person is vital to making sure that your social reservoir is full. And so we go to great lengths to make sure that the entire team gets together once a year during non-pandemic times for a summit called GitLab Contribute. This is an amazing, jovial celebration. There's a bit of work, but most of it is just excursions and team bonding, the things that we miss out on when you aren't able to see someone on a regular basis. And we're also very intentional about getting sub-teams together more frequently, a sales kickoff, for example, or outfitting senior leaders with budget to get their smaller sub-teams together for retreats on a more regular basis. The point here is don't try to build a company where no one ever sees anyone ever. That's not the recommended <laughs> approach. Make sure that you are intentional about executing a strategy of when people get together and why. And I want to mention one other point here. For people that are new to this, you may be inclined to spend the budget to get people together and then fill that time with work or strategy sessions. Resist that urge. The truth is the highest ROI of in-person synchronous time 
is bonding, culture building, rapport building, breaking bread with people. That is more difficult, if not impossible, to do virtually. The work part of this, we're getting pretty good at figuring out how to do that virtually. But breaking bread together, that's what the time should really be reserved for. Yeah, it's funny that you say that because I feel a lot of organizations are emphasizing right now that that's exactly what they're missing. But then when you look at the offices that they have, it's not really fostering that bread sharing culture, but it's more like you come here and then you work productively. And then maybe at the water cooler, you can bump into someone. Indeed. Another thing I wanted to ask you, um, because I usually do a little background research on my guests. I did so for you as well. <laughs> and I've noted that you say remote is deeply personal to you. Can you tell us why? And then also, which opportunities do you see in the larger scheme for the society and organizations if they embrace that remote work? So I'll credit my friend Kate Lister for this quote, but I feel like I've been pushing the remote work boulder up a mountain for the better part of my working career, and now it is bounding down the other side. But the point here is this didn't happen overnight. I fell in love with distributed and remote working very early on in my career. And once you've been bitten by the bug, there's no putting that genie back in the bottle. Once you've fully embraced flexibility, it's going to be really difficult to convince someone to live their life around the rigidity of a daily commute. And so I fell into it very early and I have maneuvered my career to work with people who understood, appreciated, respected, and took advantage of that. And so it has been personal for me for a very long time. I've been able to visit a lot of places in the world, see a lot of cultures, experience a lot of things that many people have to wait to check off in retirement on their bucket list. But the other part here is how we've been able to grow our family. So almost three years ago, my wife and I adopted a newborn at birth. It's been a transformational, amazing experience. It's a fully open adoption. Quick aside, if anyone listening to this is interested in fostering or adopting, I'm an open book and would be happy to help on that front. But the thing here is adopting and fostering is a journey, but it becomes much easier if you have flexibility in the workplace. And so it has become personal to me because I've seen how I've been able to grow my family in a unique and extraordinary way through this additional flexibility. And to your second question, what I see is what happens if we take this to scale? If you have tens of millions of people coming out of COVID who can now work remotely or more flexibly, what if they point that repurposed commute time toward a purpose that matters to them? We as a society could solve the orphan crisis in a matter of months with no additional funding or infrastructure at all, just by using repurposed commute times. So what other crises or purposes exist that I'm not so intimately aware of that if you just give people time back and point that focus in that direction, we can really make significant headway on that? Yeah. Now, I think for remote work to be successful, there needs to be a certain setup. And I've just admired yours with the equipment that you have and the corner that you built out for you. Uh, for a lot of people in the pandemic, it was just working from the kitchen table yeah. and working with the tools that were available. But how do you do it right? What yeah. are the essentials that you need to support the remote work and the experience? For example, when it comes to technologies, and work equipment more generically. 
Yeah, this is, there's a lot to unpack here. This is, again, why you need a leader in charge of making sure that you set your organization up for success. Many people are not interior designers. They don't know how to build a great office space. I actually optimized the home that I live in for remote work. I chose this home because I live in a fairly rural place, but it has fiber to the home. So that was my number one objective in selecting a home was to make sure it had fast broadband. A lot of people who were forced into COVID did not optimize their home purchase for that. And they probably got a smaller place because they didn't think they would be working and living in it every single day. So step one is, how do you optimize for this long-term? You have to open up this possibility book where people can rethink where they live and how they live, but it's going to take time. You can't just move overnight for a lot of people. There are some considerations there. So what can you do as an organization to help people where they are? It starts with the workspace. Don't be stingy on this. If you're going to spend lots of money in an office to outfit people with great equipment, give them that freedom and flexibility to do so in their home. And if they aren't comfortable buying their own equipment, First Base is an amazing organization that essentially creates an office in a box and simplifies this greatly. The second thing here is don't assume that the office and the home are the only two places to work. There's going to be this burgeoning third space. Cody is a great example of a company that are outfitting homes to be workspaces during the day in communities where people already are. So this allows them to go work with people who already exist in their community, but it's at a place different than their home and it's not the office. So this is going to be a fascinating space to watch. And the third thing is the digital infrastructure. A lot of organizations are just trying to press copy on the office environment and paste it into the virtual environment. And as we've seen, it's passable. You can make it work, but it's not optimal. And so what does your digital tool stack need to look like when the central hallway, if you will, is virtual, not in person. There's a couple of great options here. Catalog with a Q, Q-A-T-A-L-O-G, and Dropbox Spaces are two amazing central hallways, but you have to be very intentional about centralizing where work happens. Otherwise, you get chaos. It's just a different form of it. Yeah. So are these some of the things that I would find in the remote playbook? Absolutely. Thanks for asking that. My goal, honestly, is to answer everything with a link. It's one of the sayings we have at GitLab that if someone asks a question, we want to make sure that we get them the answer, but make sure that it's documented in the handbook so that if anyone has this question again, they'll be able to find it. And so everything that we've learned and all of the new tools that we've adopted, we document those in our ever-growing company handbook. And again, emphasizing for everyone listening, this is a free source available. I did see it. And you get a chapter overview in there. So if you're building out remote, have a look at that. What I think might be covered in there as well, but I'm going to ask you now for the benefit of me and everybody else. How do you enable people to be happy and successful in a remote setup besides having the equipment And one aspect, especially, I think, being onboarding, also manager training. How do you manage a workforce that you're not seeing regularly? It really does start with onboarding and making sure that people have an equal footing when they join. So this requires a lot of documentation. If you look at GitLab's onboarding process, it is all documented and it is all done through GitLab. 
And if you're in a situation where some people are being onboarded in person and some are being onboarded virtually, make sure that you shift as much as you possibly can such that it is location agnostic. So that even if someone chooses to onboard in person, the actual nuts and bolts of learning what they need to do their job is documented. You want as much of it written down as possible. So this will be a change for a lot of organizations. On the upskilling and training front, this is very, very important. There are some unique skills to thrive as a remote team that aren't as necessary in a co-located space. For example, great business writing with low context communication. So this means collaborating and communicating with a high degree of precision. So writing things down so precisely that if someone wakes up 12 hours from now and they view this project completely asynchronously, you've given them enough context to understand what's going on and move that project forward, to iterate that project, potentially while you're not even awake. This is a fundamentally new and different skill for a lot of people. And as leaders, you cannot assume that people will just understand how to think differently about their work or know how to do this. So I see it as a massive opportunity for learning and development to create new modules to upskill their teams for what they need in this new remote working world. Yeah. The other thing I want to mention here on happiness is that I think the global narrative has looked at this change through the lens of, well, how do we make do or what can we do now that we don't have the office? But things get very interesting when you ask yourself, what can we do now that we don't have the typical burdens that we've had in the past? If you look at it through an opportunistic lens, you can get very creative. And of course, those opportunities will expand greatly once we're on the other side of the pandemic. Right now, we're still fairly limited on that. Yeah, that's true. What a lot of companies I feel are afraid of is losing culture when they allow for remote work. So that's the main claim I'm hearing, like people need to be back in the office because we're losing the culture. And they claim as well that creativity and innovation can't thrive without that water cooler moment and the personal interaction. Now, you're in a company where I wouldn't say you're not innovating and you're not creative and you do have culture. So what's your secret and how do you see that claim? I'll give you a few bits here. First of all, remote work doesn't kill culture, it reveals culture. So the culture is already established. Remote just puts a really big spotlight on it. The second thing is in great remote teams, culture is written down. What culture really is, is the barometer of how well your values are lived out and reinforced. And if your values are not written down, if they're all implicit, they're not explicit, then you'll never really know if they're being lived out and if they're being reinforced. So another plug for the GitLab handbook, if you Google GitLab values, you will see an incredibly comprehensive values page that doesn't just stop at words like collaboration and iteration. We explicitly say how you live those values. No ego is a great one. Short toes is another one. You can't step on anyone's toes because everyone has short toes. It's a very explicit way to explain how we expect people to collaborate. So culture becomes this thing that you can't just take for granted. It's not going to be designed by the color of the lighting in your office or the brand of coffee that you serve. It's going to be something that you write down and you have to be much more intentional about. And so if you haven't done that, now's a great time for a values audit, making sure that that's there. The other thing I want to mention here is that in great remote teams, Culture is largely built outside of work and then enabled 
to inflow into work. And this is a paradox. This is a juxtaposition. This is a brain wrecker for a lot of companies. But let me give you one example of what I mean by this. A lot of companies have resorted to Zoom happy hours to try to maintain some semblance of company culture during the pandemic. And there's nothing wrong with Zoom happy hours. But let's say that as a leader, you've already committed a thousand or more person hours on a Friday to getting together in a virtual box with funny hats, just trying to make culture happen. So it's a sunk cost. You've already committed the hours. Instead, what I would offer up is what if you did a community impact outing? So what this is, is the same hour, but instead of gathering everyone in a virtual Zoom box, you deploy them into the communities that they already live in. The one thing that you request is everyone wear company swag. So send them out. Maybe it's an hour at Habitat for Humanity. Maybe it's an hour reading at the local library. Something meaningful to you, but wearing company swag. And you have to take a selfie of yourself while there. Then on the next week, if you have an all hands or another Zoom happy hour, you actually have tangible evidence of people doing things with their hour, building that culture by sharing who they really are as a human while positively moving the world forward. This is a much better way to deploy that same hour, but it requires leadership to believe that we got to let go to get back. Now, you have over 15 years of experience leading remote teams and have been part of remote transformation at various stages. When do you think is the right point in time to appoint someone to become head of remote? When do you need that? Yesterday, but Today works as well. <laughs> the truth is, this is not going to be a temporary change. This has so fundamentally changed people's perceptions of work. And we've realized that for many roles, you can do it more flexibly than before. It's going to become table stakes and talent acquisition and retention. And the longer companies wait and delay putting actual leadership around it, the more opportunity you're giving your top talent to look somewhere to a company that is truly investing and not just allowing remote or distributed work, but truly supporting it. And for people that have really embraced it and they're changing their lives around it, this is going to be a significant element of what they look for in their next role. Yeah. And then if you're building for that function, where should it sit within the organization? I mentioned this earlier, but it really does depend on where you need the most help now. For some companies, it will make sense to sit in finance and real estate and workplace. For some companies, it will make sense to sit in HR or people operations. For some companies, it makes sense to sit in marketing or communications, where storytelling and driving the internal campaign and change management. I think it matters a, a bit less where it sits. Just get the team formed and then be okay iterating on it. What people really need right now is direction and leadership and a feeling that leadership understands that the future is going to look different than the past and that someone is working on making it a great future. My friend Paul McKinley over at Vista has this amazing term of shybrid, shy hybrid, where a lot of companies are sitting right now. They're being really shy on what are we going to do in the future? Are we going to hire a person or a team to change this? Are we simply going to keep kicking our return to office date down the road without giving anyone any actual concrete data that they can change their life with? This shybrid approach is really detrimental to long-term culture. If you look around 
Twitter, for example, you'll see some companies, employees at Shopify, for example, who are saying, I'm so grateful that our leadership made the decision early to say, we're going to be remote first or digital first by default. And instead of waiting two years for this to happen, they've had two years for people to optimize their lives for something different. They're much happier off than those who are simply waiting for this potential day where things can, quote, go back to normal. And I don't know that we'll ever actually get there. Yeah, feels like flying under the radar as long as you can and blaming like non-available data where like the few data points you have are all pointing to, well, people like flexibility. Surprise. (laughs) For sure. And a lot of this data is also colored by the pandemic. I think what you'll see coming out of it is people love flexibility when they can actually leverage it and take advantage of it. And for companies, I would look at it as a business continuity point right now. You really need a remote work strategy because you need to know that you'll be equipped to drive results without being able to visit a physical location when the next crisis hits. Yeah, because I have to say, here in Europe, especially Switzerland, we're back to, I'm not sure if they uh, already decided, but it looks like mandated home office again. And it feels a lot like you're just the ball that you're being played with. Like now you can come to the office and we encourage you all come please because we want to build company culture. And then there's these rules and now you all go back to remote and we'll see you again in half a year or whenever we're allowed to be back. So. Yeah, there's something to be said for that intention behind things. And I'll I'll give you one other point on that. For leaders who are trying to figure this out, a mental model that I found very helpful is that even if you do want to reopen offices, they should be places where people can go to work remotely. If you open an office and people fundamentally go there to work differently, you need to really evaluate is that the most scalable way to run your business. And this is why when the office reopens should be to some degree irrelevant because you're spending the time now rethinking how you work to make sure that when the offices do reopen, it won't create this massive snap back to the way things were. This is a golden opportunity to really think about and reevaluate how you work differently so that when offices do reopen, You've already mastered new ways of working in the interim. Yeah. Which brings me to another question I have. From what you've seen, do you have an example of a failure with remote transformation and how you or the organization bounce back from that? The biggest failures in a remote transformation come from not being intentional about creating a tier A and a tier B playing field. So I go back to this term, shybrid. That's where all of the errors come from. When there's not executive sponsorship on this is what the future looks like, we're just going to allow some teams to work remotely and some teams, maybe they're in the office and we'll just let each team figure it out for themselves. Now on paper, this seems like, well, we're giving great autonomy and flexibility to every team. But the truth is you do need some permissions to play, some basic guardrails where people can know that information is found here. And this is how this workflow happens, some sort of cohesion and discipline that goes along with it. So where the companies really mess up is uh, they say, yeah, we'll allow remote work. And then they put no additional infrastructure or investment into it. What happens there is you get a class of people who are primarily in the office 
and a class that are primarily outside of the office. And then there's all sorts of friction and chaos and dysfunction that comes from that, especially when you look at who gets praised, who gets promoted, who has access to certain levels of information. If you're going down the hybrid route, it has to be done with extreme intentionality. I often say that if GitLab, an all-remote company, needs a head of remote, a hybrid company definitely needs one because there's so much more to administrate. You have people in more places with access to different information. Some people are in a boardroom with a whiteboard that isn't connected to the internet. What happens to collaboration that is done there versus all of the people that are elsewhere? There's a lot to think about. And so for me, hybrid is where a lot of the root of a lot of problems, if it is not leaned into with great intentionality. You'll hear intentionality a lot. Remote work really does force that function. Yeah. Would you agree then with the approach? I've heard that a couple of times now to say, for example, meetings. There is no hybrid in meetings. It's either all digitally or all on site. Yeah. So Tracy Hawkins at Twitter actually mentioned this as well. So if one tweet is remote, uh, everyone dials in. I think that's a great way to approach it right now. It is one way to ensure that there's a level playing field. Interestingly, I think technology will help us solve this. So what we're talking about right now, creating an equitable experience in a meeting, we're using tools that were built in an office first era. We're just using them intelligently and inclusively. But no doubt there are teams working right now on how to create a distributed first meeting tool so that it funnels people into a more inclusive experience versus them having to manually re-architect how they use a tool or product. Now, we've talked about the failure and how to bounce back. Do you have as well a more golden nugget lessons learned um, for remote work success? Document everything that matters. This is so, so, so important and it's so easy to overlook. There's this fine line between what needs to be temporally documented and what needs to be documented as an actual artifact. And it's an ever-evolving line. You're always playing with what needs to be written down for more than just a week. You always learn. But I would say part of this remote team should be someone in charge of knowledge management company-wide. Now, of course, sub-teams may document smaller things in a system that makes sense to them. But by and large, you do want a company-wide repository where documentation is taking place. At GitLab, we actually avoid the word documentation as much as possible. We prefer the term handbook first. And the reason for that nuance is we want to encourage people to work handbook first, as in if it's not in the handbook first, then it isn't yet a change. It hasn't happened yet. It doesn't exist. And you really do need to be this regimented about writing things down. The reason for this is it's the only effective way to scale knowledge. As your team grows, they become more distributed. They're in more time zones. You never know when someone is online or offline. Writing things down, keeping it in a central repository, and keeping it fresh and updated is the only way to ensure that people have access to the most up-to-date information. Now, a lot of people will groan at this and say, oh, that seems so inefficient to write all of this down. But I would argue it's because your time scale is different. If you look at your life in 30-minute chunks, then taking time to write something down does feel very inefficient. But if you think in terms of weeks or months or years, writing something down today very much works like compounding interest. 
when a person has this question or they need some context on this very thing next week or next month or next year, because you've written it down today, you have saved yourself and your team a lot of time by not having someone virtually tap you on the shoulder to find something that can already be written down. But this is very much a top-down movement. You need executive sponsorship. You need executives that buy into it, that spend their own time documenting. If it's a grassroots initiative from the bottom, you'll get a couple of teams that have everything written down and then other teams that have nothing written down, it really does require executive sponsorship to work at an organizational level. Yeah, I have two small remarks. The, the one is writing it now down. It also feels to me like it's equalizing things because while you might have told that to one person in your team, if you write it down, everybody has access to it and everybody can get the same knowledge. And you don't have to repeat the conversation if somebody else asks. That's what you said, like saving time for your future self, kind of. Now, the other thing I'm having a little question mark around is like, if everything's diligently documented, how do you stay on top of things? Couldn't it be really intimidating to have that really big book of everything? People will often ask, do I have to read the entire GitLab handbook when I join the company? <laughs> so there are many thousands of pages in it. But my response is simple. Do you think there's too much information on the internet? And most people would say, no. I just learned how to search for what I need when I need it. And we take a very similar approach in organizational design. There are 2,000, 3,000 pages in the handbook. We don't expect you to read all of them ever. We just teach people how to search for what they need when they need it. And so we point out the most essential things during onboarding. And one of those essential things is actually how to search the GitLab handbook like a pro. Believe it or not, there's actually a page on searching the GitLab handbook, to no one's surprise. But this really uh, is how we tackle it. We try to embed a self-service mindset. We hire for this leadership principle at GitLab called a manager of one. And part of that is having this innate self-service mindset that when you think of a problem or a scenario, instead of defaulting to scheduling a meeting with someone or defaulting to thinking who the subject matter expert is, you default to searching and when you search, you're able to find much more information contributed from a much more diverse cast of people who understand and can contribute to this information. But of course, it requires organizational-wide support of this type of initiative. Yeah, and it requires some kind of self-discipline because it's it sometimes feels easier to ask your colleague, right, and more social to be like, do you know where this is? But then you steal their time. Exactly. And look, that still happens. We have a Slack instance and you'll find people asking questions, but it's always heartening to see someone respond with a link, which means that it has been written down somewhere. So of course, we don't mind answering questions, but it's a lot more efficient to be able to answer them with a link. And also when people ask questions, if it's truly net new and hasn't been written down before, that's an opportunity to add something else to the handbook and Write it down once so that we can answer it multiple times in the future. We've been fast and furious today. I'm already coming to the two questions everybody knows that Ooh. I'm going to ask. And one is, if you had a magical wish or if you could magically solve a problem around work transformation, what would it be? 
Easier retreats. I still long for a teleportation device. I'm a remote advocate, but I'm an avid traveler and I've been able to travel a lot less during COVID and I miss it. I miss getting out there and meeting people in different settings and in different cultures. So my hope is that team retreats become a lot easier, more affordable, and that people are able to experience other places outside of their own home with a lot more ease in the future. I think that would be great also for our environment and sustainability goals globally, right? Indeed. Now I got you on because Tracy said I should talk to you. So who do you think I should talk to next on the podcast? I'm going to offer up Paul McKinley at Simpress and Vista. He has driven an amazing remote first transformation at an organization where some would have said it wasn't possible because some of their workers have to be on site. And so why I think that's a fascinating case study is that remote or distributed work, remote first principles, they're no longer binary. There's no longer an excuse that it won't work for us. There are elements or departments or functions in every company that can be done more flexibly than before. And I love that we're seeing some companies lean as far into this more inclusive way of working as possible. And I hope that it sheds light for other companies who are trying to figure out how do we do this in what areas. It's been a great pleasure, Darren. Thank you very much for taking the time and sharing your experiences with me and the audience. Happy to do it. Thanks for having me on, Sabine. Thanks for listening. If you have enjoyed this episode of The Workplace Leader, there's more. Go visit our blog and have a look at some of the other topics we have covered. We have just released a study on data readiness in CRE, along with the opportunity to assess your organization's workplace insight score. Or tune into our next episode of The Workplace Leader. <laughs>